It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Cut to the Chase. My guest today is Aida Leisenring. She is an attorney at the law firm of Barquette, Epstein, Kieran, Aldea, and Laturco. And she specializes in representing mostly difficult cases. She started out her career with the New York City Legal Aid Society in Brooklyn defending indigent cases. And now she really focuses, uh, well, you, I can talk to you because you're right here with me, and I'm so happy that you joined me in, in the studio today, specializing in taking on cases of people who are perhaps improperly sentenced on death row, Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and how you got into it, why this kind of law is so interesting to you. Well, before I ever went to law school, I thought, well, I want to be a writer. I love humanity. I love studying humanity. And I think people, perhaps, that are children of divorced families or big eccentric families have a tendency to look at the psychology behind the human condition and why people do what they do and lack of communications and understanding. And so I thought I was a writer at heart. And when I graduated from college, I said to myself, well, maybe I'll dabble in writing, but I didn't have the experience. So I got a lucky break. I worked at Elle magazine. And then I said, I don't want to end up being, you know, 10 years from now, the editor in chief of a magazine. I want to either do direction, writing, cinema, or criminal defense. And why criminal defense? Because in a sense, you are taking a a set of facts, and you're stuck with those facts, and you're creating a narrative, and you're explaining the reasons behind those facts or how to perceive those facts. And then in a sense, you have a set, and you're putting on witnesses and directing them and telling a story. And I thought the fact that there's a real stake in that would make whatever skill sets I had, whether it was writing, whether it was creating a narrative or public speaking, would be helpful to that, you know, ultimately fighting for the underdog. But to answer your questions, the kind of cases we take are really anybody who needs help. Mm. So that person might be someone wrongfully accused before trial So we want to prevent a wrongful conviction. It might be someone who made a mistake, regrets it, and the prosecution really wants to give them excessive amount of time. And you think you might be able to help them by negotiating a better deal and giving that person a second chance. Or it might be someone who's been wrongfully convicted or had an excessive sentence or had some crazy appealable issue and the conviction was wrongful, even though maybe they weren't 100 percent innocent of the crime. And they need good lawyers willing to sweat and work mm-hmm. and help them out. So Now, it's interesting that you were 
kind of torn between cinema, film, directing, and being a criminal defense attorney. Because you're right. You're taking whether it's a script, a set of facts, and you have to turn that into a story that's compelling and persuasive. And you kind of combined those two things for the docuseries you did with ABC that you co-executive produced with Viola Davis, Justice for Julius Jones. Tell us a little bit about that. So in 2015... In October, and I remember this because I was visiting my mom in Spain and I was sitting with my brother and I had been thinking about the next level of criminal defense cases and I was thinking a lot about death penalty cases. We don't have the death penalty in New York State. Right. We still have the federal death penalty. And I said, I'm kind of I I need to be creative. I think it's good to shake up your profession by doing other things. I think it can be helpful if you're just a lawyer and you're just in the courtroom and your only friends are lawyers. I don't think you're going to be fantastic in front of a jury because you have to have other human experiences. And I said, I'd love to do a TV show that humanized people on death row because everybody looks at these individuals like, A, they must absolutely be guilty. Mm. Um, They've gone through all these appeals. It's a serious case. We probably have less you know, wrongful convictions on death row. But what about that person and the 20 years they spend on death row awaiting their execution and their families and their children? And what about that experience? And so... And God, that's just the stories are so fascinating. Right, they and, are. And, some and they pe- go on and on and on. It's not like you're on death row and your story's done. No. And, and what's amazing, too, is what we've since learned is the bonds and friendships that individuals form on death row, and sometimes there's moratoriums, so they don't think they're going to be executed, and then, boom, one day the state figures out the right cocktail of pharmaceuticals, and they do the green light, and all of a sudden, one by one, their friendships, their lifelines, ironically, of 20 Mm. years, walk out one day and get put on 24-hour, you know, uh, watch because they're going to be executed. So that's devastating. But at over very good wine with my mom and my brother, um, I in said, Spain, I, in Spain, <laughs> I said, I really want to do something about yeah. this. And I texted my good friend and mentor, Vanessa Potkin, who's the director of post-conviction litigation at the Innocence Project, and is fun and is creative. A lot of lawyers are creative, and people don't realize that. You know, they have, like, this, you know, band gig going on, or they write books. Um, And I said, why don't we do something about this? And she said, a study recently came out indicating that 4% of individuals on death row are actually innocent, And we looked up the numbers, and at the time, I think there were like 3,000-some, and we said that means that there's 120 Mm. people, approximately, Mm. that are innocent and are scheduled to be executed. What are their stories? So then we developed this this show, ultimately, and it was... I mean, thank God for uh, Christine Connor, um, who was at XCOM Productions at the time, and Viola Davis taking it on and, you know, giving it a huge spotlight. Yeah. Um, But we found the case of Julius Jones and we were so compelled by it. And it's interesting because no one had really heard of him. Um, We also featured Darlie Rotier, which she had been featured by ABC I think numerous times, mm. but no one had heard of Julius Jones, and he had this beautiful, extended family, very honest mother, father, hardworking siblings, 
And he was so young when he got convicted. Oh, yeah, it's heartbreaking. And it had so many issues that were um, front and center of, like, the laundry list of reasons for wrongful convictions on death row that we thought this is the perfect study. But before we chose him, we were contemplating, you know, let's look at his record. Could he have done it? We were trying to figure out, you know, and vet the case ultimately. But we chose it, and thank God, because the impact it ultimately had, and he was four hours from execution, and Governor Stitt finally um, gave him clemency, and he now is is saved. Mm. And I can't imagine what that would have been like. And I credit ABC, Viola Davis, Kim Kardashian, all the researchers, all the directors and producers involved with that case for shining a light on him and Republicans and Democrats, high profile politicians, actors, athletes alike were all standing behind him. And it was a very powerful moment. That's what was so striking about it is Republicans and Democrats, so many of them were together on this. And when you think about criminal justice reform, bail reform, what do you make of that in your business, in your business of helping people you believe are wrongfully accused or wrongfully convicted get off? Where do you stand on all of that? With respect to bail reform, it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. I think that you can choose a side and support it. Mm -hmm. But what really matters is why is there a rise in crime? Exactly. Yeah. And not, you know, we should put everyone up with preventative detention, regardless of the presumption of innocence and whether or not they're poor or wealthy. And you look at bail reform in other states pre-pandemic, and it's worked. In federal cases, you have a dangerousness factor. Mm. Ultimately, a lot of individuals that are indigent are able to get a bond in federal court if the court determines that they're not dangerous. So maybe that's the middle ground in New York yeah, State. Yeah, that was the biggest sticking point here in New York. But I look at, like, what's happened in the last few years. There's been so so many social disruptions. Yeah. And they've, you know, I don't think you can be honest and look at the data and say that these social disruptions haven't contributed to the rise in crime, to anger, to mental health, mm-hmm. to loss of job, to loss of income. Um, so... I, Education, kids being out of school, kids flunking out of school because they're not adapting well to the online, you know, school status that, you know, may may not have an ideal family situation at home or maybe their parents are working and never around and they need that structure of going to school, seeing friends, taking advantage of mentors. I mean, think about the impact that a teacher or a counselor may have had on you and certainly they had on me and what they can do for Students that are on the brink of maybe quitting school and taking to a life on the streets or, you know, being encouraged and feeling self-esteem with hard work that Mm -hmm. they see the fruits of that dedication. So, yeah, but that's a real that's a real concern. And a lot of educators that I speak to are concerned that things are going to get worse because of what they're seeing in the classroom these days. And I'm talking about in the suburbs, not just in the city, you know, with that loss of time and how parents have reacted and. 
it's really concerning. But anyway, back back to you and what you do. Um, you obviously represent people that some might say are bad, bad, bad. people. I was going to say unsavory, yeah. but I think bad kind of is a little more blunt. <laughs> I'm thinking of a former cop, Nicholas Tartaglioni. Tartaglione. Tartaglione. Yes. I guess. No, I'm, that's okay. I guess I'm doing the Italian yeah. with the not pronouncing. I do that the too. G. I go back and forth. Yeah. So, but this is an interesting one because there definitely is a press hook here. He, correct me if I get this wrong, but he was Jeffrey Epstein's cellmate. Yes. In his first suicide try, right. Jeffrey Epstein's, that is, the correct. video went missing. Yes. Of that. And you're saying that if the video were, no, by the way, this guy, he's a former cop. I believe he's from upstate. Yes. And he was involved, he's going to be put to death. Uh, in a, for a drug-related quadruple homicide. So there's a whole story there that I'm sure is just fascinating. But it gets more interesting because, so this video where, where Epstein tried to kill himself, it's missing. And you're saying if this video were were found, if people could see it, they might see, you know, that, the, that, that your client, Tartaglione, helped him not die. Correct. And right now, Nick, as I know him, and I've known him for five years, has mm. been sitting in pretrial detention for... And where Since is he? Since 2006. Staying? Right now he's at MDC, which is in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and he was at MCC uh, previously and back and forth. But imagine that. You're charged with a crime, a, a horrific crime that he's charged with. He's still presumed innocent, and this is a, a federal crime that he's charged with. He's presumed innocent, but he's been incarcerated for over five years awaiting a trial. And... Someone in his position who's facing the death penalty, who Washington has authorized seeking the death penalty as a sentence, should he be convicted of these crimes, um, will have two trials. So the first trial is to determine whether or not he's innocent or guilty or whether the government has proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And if the jury finds that they have then there's going to be a second trial mm. where the government will argue there's all of these aggravating circumstances that make him not worthy of life in prison. And we'll be arguing there is so much mitigation mm. and you only need to find a single mitigator. Hmm. It could just be your own humanity, your own compassion, where you look at him sitting at the table and you see that he's got good manners and that he's got a good relationship with his lawyers and you see his mother in the audience and you say, you know what? He's a 50-something-year-old male. He has no prior criminal convictions. Um, I'm going to spare him his life, but he'll be in prison for the rest of his life, right? right? It's not like he's going scot-free. So one of the things that happened is you're focused on this very serious crime and these allegations and defending these allegations and investigating it and looking through all the discovery. And then your client gets placed, he didn't request this, placed in a cell with the world's most notorious defendant. Yeah. Who's on every cover of every newspaper online, both Hollywood and, you know, politics, Wall Street Journal, it just, New York every Times. Every world is sucked hello, into that. Hello, OK Spain, you know, the Royals. People Magazine, yeah. right? And so he's placed in a cell with him. And imagine what that it's does. Crazy. We want a fair and impartial jury. And imagine what it does when Jeffrey Epstein attempts to commit suicide is hospitalized and then is put on suicide watch 
and the media goes to town on your client mm. and they describe him as this hulking, you know, bad cop that's charged with killing four, you know, uh, Mexican uh, possible drug dealers, right? Mm. And they, they, the media spins this narrative that's completely unwarranted and not supported by evidence and not supported by our understanding of what occurred, that can be very, very harmful mm -hmm. during a trial, a trial that has nothing to do with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, so if, is there is there another side to that? And maybe I'm oversimplifying it. But where because he is adjacent to this crazy pedophile anti-celebrity that you're going to get more press, you're going to get more attention for this case or no, or it wouldn't have been a factor had he not been his roommate. Well, I think what we were doing with the loss of the videotape is the videotape wouldn't have shown what happened in the cell, mm. but the videotape would have shown the hallway, the timing, the reaction, mm. light switches being turned on, and it would have corroborated what we know to be true and what I believe the government agrees to be true, that our client saw this happen, yelled for help, mm. and ultimately acted appropriately and assisted in ensuring that he didn't die. Right, right. right. And you can, you, can, you can say he saved his life, or you can say he acted appropriately, or you can say he did nothing wrong, but he called for workers. However you want to characterize it, we just wanted to prevent the incorrect and improper narrative that our client was this scary, violent human being that tried to kill a cellmate. Right. 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 And so that would be something that would be important should he be convicted in, in addressing jurors as to someone who could adjust well in prison and do good. Right. And the loss of that video may prevent us from making that argument mm. as do you have, as well as we could make it, but but these are all hypotheticals about and, what happened to this video. Um, here's here's my personal take. Yeah, because um, it's so odd. It is so odd. Unless unless you're a lawyer and you go to these facilities every day and you see how poorly run they are. You think um, it's incompetence? Yes, and incompetence. I, I really do. And mm. I think it's under, and I don't mean incompetence that the, the guards are bad or that this mm -hmm. person is bad. It's just underfunded, overcrowded, maybe too many people taking sick days. Maybe they're understaffed. Maybe they're not paid well enough. Maybe they're not trained well enough. But having a video disappear sounds salacious and conspiratorial. It does. That's where um, my mind goes. But as a practitioner who's had that happen to them before on a non-high profile case, you realize that sometimes it is incompetence. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I don't, I'm not going to profess any kind of opinion on it without actually knowing. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't blame people, very, very sane people, mm -hmm. rational people that aren't super politically active for, you know, maybe even a mousy person that never chimes in like, oh, he absolutely was, you know, it was an attempted murder. Somebody killed him. <laughs> right. And why would the video of Jeffrey Epstein, right. why would that be the thing that goes missing? Because there's so many crazy and not so crazy theories, sto crazy stories about Jeffrey Epstein right. and what the heck happened there. So 
That's just, that's just, I found that so fascinating. So I first met your colleague, Bruce Barquette, back when I was a reporter at the Daily News in the mid to, I guess around 2004, 2005, when Marty Tankliff, that whole case was coming back. And for those who don't know about this case, this is one of those infamous Long Island murder cases. 1988, Marty Tankliff is a teenager, and he's accused of killing, murdering, in a bloody mess, his two parents at their swanky waterfront home. He confesses. He goes to jail. Uh, he always maintained his innocence. And then fast forward all, you know, about 15 or so years, Bruce, I guess Bruce takes on the case, or maybe he had the case, and I covered how it was overturned. And now Marty's Martin Tankliff is actually working at the firm. He went to law school. Isn't it incredible? Yeah. It's it's such an amazing story. So I was talking about this with a friend of mine who's a prosecutor. He said, That guy's that guy's effing guilty. Yeah. They people really still people, believe that. Yep. That guy's like, there's no way he didn't do it. I carpooled with Marty to work and, and someone said, Are you safe? And I said, Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> here's the interesting takeaway is we know so much about false confessions, but it's the one piece of evidence that even rational, highly intelligent practitioners of, you know, in the criminal justice system still don't always believe. A lot of people, even though they've read the data, they've been educated, they're people that falsely confessed and DNA evidence exonerated them. So we know factually 100% mm -hmm. that their confession was false and that they're innocent. But a lot of people just say, well, I would never falsely confess. So put so me in the I mind can't... Of, of a suspect who would falsely confess. You know, I didn't murder my parents. Why would I tell this detective that I did? Um, I can't speak for Marty's situation specifically. Right, and, but just in general. And in general, I think what happens is, and I, I would imagine, and, and Marty obviously will, will speak to this, but... Um, Let's not forget the experience he had just had. He had discovered his parents. Yeah. He was a teenager. He was in shock. He, yeah. you know, I would be catatonic. I don't yeah. know what I would be like. Yeah. And then you're, I don't think all false confessions come with threats that are explicit. Like, it's, it's easier to understand if someone's threatening to punch me 300 times or if they do... You know, if I'm tortured, obviously I'm going to yeah, falsely I'm in confess, a hell of a right? Lot of pain. I'm not, I, I'm I'm not <laughs> this crazy CIA operative yeah. who can necessarily withstand that kind of torture. Pain. Yeah, but it's the psychological coercion that really you can't perceive a world where you'll be charged, wrongfully convicted, incarcerated for nearly two decades based on what you say. You're in a room. You're exhausted. You've been emotionally and mentally manipulated. Mm, you're in a state that you've never been in before in your entire life. And you're psychologically beaten into believing that if you just give them what they want, they'll let you go. You'll be able to breathe. You'll be able to walk out of the room. Mm. And... Have you ever gotten into a fight and you just don't agree? And this mm -hmm. is a, a very simple version of it. Mm -hmm. And you finally go, fine, you're right, even though mm -hmm. you don't believe it, mm -hmm. because you just want the fight to stop. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a couple. That's you know? relatable. Yeah. Right? That's relatable. And that's when there's not really a huge stake in the process. So there are many different psychological tricks, 
based on your circumstances, your emotions, your background, and what the promises are that can get someone to confess. Mm, Interesting. So I imagine in your work, you have to obviously be very strategic, obviously know the law, but you also have to have a lot of empathy and be able to get into people's heads to understand the psychology. Do you ever worry that maybe you're being manipulated? Oh, we are all being (laughs) manipulated. You can be manipulated by an innocent person. You cannot be manipulated by a guilty person. It really doesn't matter. We, Hmm. my friend once said manipulation is, has gotten such, you know, bad, bad (laughs) rep, but people do it in their daily lives, sometimes with good intentions. The empathy part is interesting because it can be emotionally exhausting. Yeah, I would if imagine. you feel for the person, especially when with their families involved. Right. And I think the ideal skill set for a criminal defense practitioner is compassion, empathy, but also you have to look at the case like very clinically. Mm. So you have to be sort of a social worker, which is exhausting, mm-hmm. but also like a surgeon mm. where you don't worry about the emotion and you're clinically trying mm-hmm. to figure out you know, how to make the incision, what, and you have to be able to dance a fine line between the two. So can you hold those two in your head at the same time? (sighs) Or do you have to really compartmentalize? You have to, um, speaking of Bruce Barquette, uh, we were talking about this very thing and I said, it's amazing how you can shut it off and go from one topic to the next. And he said, my mind is a Victorian house with different little rooms. And I go from one to the other and shut the door. And I said, I'm a loft in Manhattan. (laughs) And everything just swishes in and out at the same time. That's great. You do. You have to sometimes just say, stop, hold on. I appreciate your suffering. We're going to get to that. But I need to work on your case and I need to do the research. And that's how I'm really going to save you. So you were in the news recently commenting on this very interesting case of the undercover NYPD detective, former Joseph Franco. 133 of his cases were dismissed in the Bronx earlier this year and 90 were dismissed last year after he was convicted in 2019 on several counts of perjury and related charges. What did you make of that? And the fact that all of these cases that might, and some of them might have been just fine and solid and valid and proper, but all gone because of this lack of trust. You have to be able to trust the testimony and the allegations of the sole eyewitness, which in this case, many of these cases was Officer Franco. So if his credibility has been completely annihilated, then let's not guess Let's overturn these convictions. If there's sufficient evidence to retry them, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, as a prosecutor's office, they're welcome to do so. Mm-hmm. But they should be overturned. And the problem with a lot of these cases is some of them weren't, you know, someone spending 20 years for a crime they didn't commit. And that's horrific. But it's the mass ripple effect that one officer's credibility can have on hundreds and hundreds of people. Imagine that one guy that took a plea because his lawyer said, this guy is going to come in here and he's going to testify credibly because he knows how to testify and he's practiced and he's rehearsed and he's done this again and again and again that you had the drugs that he saw them and we have, you know, lab report and they're physically there and they're going to introduce them. You should take a plea to time served. It's safe. You won't get jail time. Mm. All right. All of a sudden, 
for the rest of his life, that person has to say every time he applies for a job, I was convicted of a drug charge. And he may not be hired, or he may be fired for the current job he has. Mm. Or if he lives in public housing, and he's an honest person making a living who has children, but needs to avail himself of public housing because he doesn't have a great enough salary, they might evict him for having a drug conviction. So these more minor offenses can have this profound negative impact mm. on someone's life. And that, that has a ripple effect on their children, on their loved ones, and on the quality of their life. So we don't always get it right. No one's perfect. Doctors mm -hmm. aren't perfect. Police officers aren't perfect. Criminal defense lawyers and prosecutors aren't perfect. But if you purposefully lied and the DA's office has been able to prove that and indict you on that and convict you on that, then maybe we need to err on the side of safety and give the benefit of the doubt to those that were previously presumed innocent and pled guilty because of your testimony. Nothing is more important than trust. True. Aida Leisenring, I want to thank you so much. And I appreciate your work. I appreciate what you do. And I also appreciate your balanced and more nuanced view of bail reform. It's very complicated. There's so much that goes into this. And just thanks so much for coming on Cut to the Chase. Thank you for having me. I love your show. Thank you. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.